Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Saman Farid, and he is supplying the world with a robot workforce uh, through his company, Formic. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Uh, Formic, it sounds like I, like that name comes from a science fiction, something science fiction, right? Yeah, uh, it is, uh, you know, has two meanings. One is it's the Latin word for ants, um, yeah. because robots will be like worker ants. But yes, uh, also it's from uh, the book Ender's Game, where there's this kind of alien tribe of uh, sentient beings that humanity thinks is their enemy for some time, uh, but they have this kind of hive mind. So I, I love that book. And, uh, uh, I, you know, read, read, you know, all I think there's like 20 books in that series. Um, and got deep into it. So it was when I when I had the chance to name my company, I figured you know that that was the perfect combination. Great, uh, and it's so funny because I've read those books. I've read a lot of those books, um, and I went deep into the all the sequels and prequels. I think I did it through various times as well. Like there are various points in my life, I went back and reread them, uh, and I knew that name sounded familiar. And I'm really glad that it came from that book in particular because that book is so good. Who is the author? Is uh, who's the author again? Orson Scott Card, I think. Yeah, Orson Scott Card, um, and uh, so beautiful book. I'm really glad that that that's the that's the uh, kind of formation of it as well. Uh, and that book just blows my mind because there's so many different ways that that the book gets into detail of how technology is really going to change our world. Um, and now we're here. It seems like we're here. We're at that moment where we're now at the we've now passed the like the beginning of the lip. Uh, in terms of age of acceleration, um, and now it's clear to everybody. It feels really clear to everybody. Is that what, what's your take on that? Are we are we in the age of acceleration? Are we just beginning the age of acceleration, or are we already far into it? Um, you know, I think it comes in spurts, um, and uh, you know, we are in the middle of one uh, of those growth spurts. Um, you know, I think humanity has gone through this kind of an acceleration multiple times in, in its in its life. You know, I think. Agricultural revolution being one of the you know big examples, you know, moving from hunter-gatherer tribes where everybody was focused on subsistence and just figuring out how they could feed themselves, to uh, a world where a small portion of humanity provides food for the rest of humans, <laughs> and everybody else can focus on other things, you know, building systems of government, building you know, advancing philosophy and art and science. Um, that was one of the examples where you know I think drastically increasing the means of production led to. Uh, significantly higher output for all of humanity. And it's this kind of exponential thing. Uh, and I think we went through that again a little bit at the Industrial Revolution, although uh, it's still very manpower heavy. You know, it's just people move from farms to factories, but, you know, still a lot of the workforce is provided by human labor. Um, I think as we move to this next age, um, you know, both the kind of digital world of things like AI. Uh, are leading to a lot of white collar work being able to be done, you know, exponentially faster. And then robotics are allowing us to do that in the physical world as well. Um, and, you know, the cool thing is when you go talk to any factory owner and you say, you know, what would you do if 
10x more or 100x more available labor. Uh, you know, they all have hundreds and hundreds of ideas of things that they would want to do. Uh, unfortunately, right now, they're bottlenecked by the fact that there's only so much labor available. And um, in factories in particular, you know, there's all of these empty positions that nobody wants, you know, these jobs. Mm -hmm. So um, I think for, for humanity's sake, you know, we need to kind of resolve that bottleneck uh, of production and drastically increase the means of production. That'll lead to, you know, a world of abundance. It'll lead to humanity being able to spend more of their time not thinking about subsistence, but instead thinking about, um, you know, how they can uh, advance, you know, the boundaries of human knowledge. So uh, it gets me pretty excited. I think that, you know, we're, we're uh, humanity is kind of turning a corner and, you know, I, I don't think it's a singular moment in the life of humanity, but, uh, you know, it's kind of a continuous spectrum. And I think we're going to keep hitting these kinds of inflection points. Mm. What you said about the factory is really interesting because now uh, a few months ago, I started working at a company. We're doing a lot of training uh, for the LLMs. And so we're kind of getting a really, really kind of um, intimate understanding of what's happening in terms of not only training the LLMs, but we also have a business of business processing process outsourcing. So we're doing the actual business process outsourcing that turned into doing the human part of the the, the human feedback that uh, LLMs require. Uh, and so we're doing both of those things. Uh, and I'm getting to see really interesting what you said, basically, that there's all these jobs that can be done, but it's limited by the fact that not everybody is there all the time. And now I have this LLM at my hands all the time. And it just sa it saved me probably about three to four hours today, I think. Uh, and it just came in the nick of time because I got the code interpreter. They just just released the code interpreter um, and as a beta. Uh, it was an alpha before. It wasn't really working. Now they released the beta it, and it saved me a huge amount of time just today, like it, it announced. Uh, and it never says no. It always says yes. Uh, sometimes it gets it wrong, uh, but it's always there. I can talk to it at, at 2 a.m. Uh, and then so like the actual labor is now there all the time and it can increase our efficiency, but that didn't solve all our problems. And so there's just like so many more problems that open up. But you had to solve that problem in order to see all the other problems that opened up and everything like that. And so now your company is doing robotics, physical robotics. Uh, and so the same thing with factory. And we just went through this crazy time with COVID and, you know, like globalization, changing everything in terms of uh, uh, outsourcing a lot of jobs to China. But now we've got the geopolitical implications of having those jobs be in China. Um, and so it, it, what do you think about this? Like, is is this going to lead to a basically a resurgence of uh, factories inside the United States, what you're doing? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, absolutely, yes. I think we're already seeing it. Actually, there was an article just yesterday in Bloomberg that says, um, let me see if I can find it for you. It says, uh, the U.S. is building factories again, but who will work there? <laughs> yeah, That's the headline article on yeah. Uh, and I think that's really the question that uh, has gone unanswered uh, in most of these kind of policy conversations where people are talking about, oh, we need to kind of revitalize American manufacturing, we need to rebuild the base, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is not that, uh, you know, we don't have enough uh, floor space available or we don't have enough machinery or forklifts or raw materials. In 99% of cases, it's that we don't have enough labor available, right? And I think if we don't solve that problem, uh, you know, we're not, we're nowhere close to being there. The interesting thing, you know, uh, to, to your example around um, GPT is that, uh, uh, you know, a lot of these tools are available now, but if you go and look at 99% of the workforce in America, 
yeah. probably most people are not using GPT in their actual work. Right? And I think the interesting thing that I've noticed both in robotics and in kind of digital versions of AI is that uh, there's the moment where the technology becomes available and then there's a long, 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 long process by which diffusion happens and people start to adopt it and actually figure out how to use it in their lives. Uh, and I think in robotics, we had this moment, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago where robotics actually started to become very useful. Um, and you saw some people adopt it, you know, the big car companies, for example, have a lot of painting robots or welding robots, but the majority of factories in America, you know, 90% of factories in America don't have a single robot. Um, and well, it's still very, very far from being uh, in mass adoption. Uh, and it's not because the technology doesn't work. It's because there's all of these surrounding complexities that make it hard for people to adopt automation. It's so, it's so, this, is, this might go very far into a tangent, but uh, it's so funny because I'm oftentimes find myself on the spectrum of not uh, acting in the same way that other people do. So like, as soon as the LLMs came out, I started using them and I started like, using them a lot. Um, and then like built the habit already somehow found myself in this job where we're actually training the thing as well. And I can use the thing inside of the job to actually do it. Um, and so for me, it's like, now I'm, I'm not, I'm not habituated to this tool. I could probably give it up. I have no problem going, going away for a long time and giving up all, all the technology and stuff. And I think that's important, but, uh, but like I've already leveraged it to a huge degree and, you know, like, as you said, like chat GPT had one of the largest growth curves ever. And now it's starting to decline and people probably were like, okay, that's really neat. That's cool. Um, and then have stopped using it basically, uh, except for strange people like me and others like me who are just like, who are, who see it immediately and want to continue using it. Uh, really interesting that you said that the same thing happens in factories. Is that right? That 90% of factories don't have uh, robotics in them. It feels like that's like crazy. Cause like, well, that's I guess. Right. What 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 are the different types of factories that are still left in the United States? Like what what are the things that United States is still producing? Uh, yeah, there's a lot. Um, you know, I'll the types that we work with a lot are food and beverage manufacturers or CPG companies that make you know hand sanitizer or lotion or things like that. There's a lot of medical device companies. There's a lot of metal fabrication companies, machine shops or welding shops that make parts for automotive, aerospace, and defense. There's also a lot of um, plastic injection molding that may, you know, they make parts for, again, medical devices, but uh, a lot of other industries as well. So there's still a good amount of manufacturing that happens in America. It's just that um, because of the cost of labor, the only kinds of products that can be made in the U.S. are the things that are either not worth it to ship here or um, are high margin enough that an American manufacturer can take it on and still make money. Uh, but those are a pretty small bucket um, of, of products compared to, you know, I lived in China for 20 years. It was a very different uh, set of circumstances and like people are you know kind of taking on more and more projects and driving economies of scale in the manufacturing industry. And there's the ecosystem that comes around it. Uh, we don't really have that in the U.S. Um, you know, I remember when I lived in China and you would go to, a you know, work in a factory and you needed something and you're like, oh, you know, this I need a special type of sensor for this machine. Uh, you know, in almost every city in China, there's some giant kind of industrials market that you can go to and you can buy the thing instantly and come back and get it working. Whereas in the US, you know, because we don't have that scale and density, you have to kind of call a distributor who will order it from their supplier and it'll take a month or something to get to you. Uh, and so, you know, because of that uh, cycle time, it makes it very hard for us to actually manufacturing things quickly and at scale in the US. And so oh, that's interesting. Um, Part of the answer is to figure out how to get to scale. 
So you're saying that like in China, that's why so much prototyping can happen in China is that you're there right next to the sensor factory. You go to the sensor, it's right there. You need what you do. You go pick it up. You don't have to wait, you know, and I imagine that some of that's now on Amazon. Some of that's easily, easily sent, but still you're going to have to wait three, four days. But like in China, it was kind of like a, a paradise. Does it still exist like that in China? First of all, absolutely, yes. But also those things are not available on Amazon, right? Like industrial grade products are generally not there. Um, and so for you to get, let's say, uh, let's say I need a, a series of bolts that are, you know, 304 stainless steel and they're a specific dimension. Uh, you know, you there's a website, for example, called like Master Car where you can go and order some of those things, but those take a long time to get to you. Uh, and then anything that's beyond that, you know, good luck. You know, you have to find a supplier, somewhere you know hope they have a distributor that's near you hope that they have that product in stock and you know it takes weeks if not months to get it to you um whereas uh in a lot of chinese cities where you know they're kind of heavily industrialized there is so much density around there that there's literally you know an area of the city that's just full of industrial equipment that you can go and pick stuff up that's wild did it was it was it but i imagine it was like that in the united states when they were say maybe uh creating the henry ford's uh you know factory yeah. So it was like that in the United States. It just happened to switch to China, basically. Yeah, I think that's the pity, right? I think the U.S. had this density and infrastructure and the ability to kind of rapidly iterate. Um, I mean, I was I was uh, listening to a podcast uh, where they were talking about Lockheed Martin and how uh, you know they built the first uh, supersonic jets uh, in 148 days from kind of initial mandate to design to build uh, just incredible you know like that kind of speed rarely happens in the u.s these days mm. uh you want to make a small change it'll take you three years and so uh it's uh you know we're, we're, we're operating at a, at a at a uh with our hands tied behind our back and i think a lot of it comes down to scale and efficiency and so when we have more density of those things in the same places we're able to leverage you know that to to, to get to more scale so um, I want, I'm very interested to dig more deeply into your business, but before that, I would love to know what's your take on 3d printing. Will 3d printing change this situation in terms of being able to prototype faster, but it's only plastics, right? So it's not going to be able to do industrial stuff. You can, you can do uh, metal 3d printing as well. And there are other types of technologies. Like, uh, there's a company called Machina Labs that's allowing you to do sheet metal, uh, you know, with 3d, uh, but, but. Uh, generally, it's still um, uh, highly custom. I think uh, I think those tools are part of the answer. They'll, they'll help us be able to build uh, you know small batches of things kind of wherever we are. Uh, but but the problem is you know most parts that are useful in an industrial setting are made of multiple kinds of materials. Uh, they're usually complex assemblies, and so you can build some of it in a three D printer, but then you know. It, it, it's usually not 100% of the answer. Like what if you need a spring or what if you need a motor? Like, you know, you can't 3D print those. Uh, and so little by little, you know, we have to kind of figure out how to fill in all the different little pieces. Interesting. Okay, so let's go into your company. What type of robots are you guys building right now? Uh, so we put a lot of different kinds of robots to work. Um, some examples are palletizing, machine tending, welding, inspection, uh, case packing, which is putting individual items into a, into a box. Uh, in the machine tending space, there's also a wide variety. So we put in robots that load and unload um, other kinds of machinery. So for example, a CNC machine or a press or a milling machine or uh, a plastic injection molding machine. 
these are often jobs, you know, uh, machines where there's somebody has to stand in front of it 24 hours a day, you know, loading in a blank, letting the machine run its course, and then taking out the finished part and putting it into a box. Uh, and this is a highly repetitive job that nobody really wants to do. It's very hard to do it two hours a day, let alone 24 hours a day. Um, and so uh, when, you know, we basically have a robot that stands in front of another machine and just feeds it and empties it. Uh, and that drastically increases the utilization of both of those pieces of machinery. That's so interesting because it goes into the kind of like, quote unquote, it's fine. It's where I'm at podcast. So I'm going to do it, but bullshit jobs. Um, there's so many bullshit jobs. And, and, uh, and it's interesting to think about that from the industrial revolution onwards, because it was really, well, I mean, I guess a lot of jobs ever since the paleolithic, ever since we started putting agriculture to use, a lot of the jobs have been sort of bullshit jobs, like um, putting a, a stone under a pyramid or something like that. And like having a hundred other people, but I guess you're all there together. Um, what I'm really trying or to say, what's that? <laughs> As an or an investment banker. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, yeah, and then that's the that goes. You know, if we take that imagination back, and we're you know, you you think about like what the bankers doing in the nineteen in the fifteen hundreds. You know, they're creating little ledgers and writing all this stuff. You know, like it kind of just you know boring stuff. Um, and uh, and you know, I was actually just doing something that required a lot of copying and pasting. And if ChatGPT hadn't saved me earlier, it would have been probably the whole day. I would have just been copying and pasting. Um, and there, there is a certain kind of focus that comes from that. That's really interesting, maybe considerable to meditation where you're focusing and you know exactly what you need to do. Uh, and so there is a sort of dopamine thing that can be happening in that, in that sense of thing, but not for 24 hours. Like not, like you said, like where you're, where you're in front of this machine and you're just going, moving it up. And so like, but there's that automatization thing that comes from, um, the industrial revolution as well, where it's like, because of the way that the fact Henry Ford's factory is set up was that instead of like an artisan who's designing all these different things, who knows how to do this, like crafting the sword, uh, you're just some guy who's taking one thing, moving it and then putting it in somewhere else. And that's just like a, a horrible kind of spiritual thing. Cause it's not, you're like the small cog in the machine and that's, you know, in the, in the actual factory, but then, uh, you know, like the investment banker type of thing too, it also applies to that knowledge work as well where you're just kind of like, you're this, this, you're, you're producing widgets and stuff like that. And like, in my mind, wouldn't it be great? Like all that just goes away and we focus on really creative stuff. Um, but is that a utopia? Like, is that, is that vision? Like, or are we going to invent new bullshit jobs? Yeah, I think um, it's a very good question. And, and I think it's a philosophical question. Uh, you know, I think AI has prompted a lot of people to ask us the question, like what makes us human? Uh, and I think when it comes to robotics, it's not too dissimilar, right? Like, um, in, on the one side, you know, these people who are doing highly repetitive jobs are doing something useful for society. Uh, on the other, uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, I feel like in a lot of ways, it's a drastic underutilization of the things that make them human. Mm. You know, they don't—they're not able to use their creativity, they're not able to use their intelligence or their dexterity, uh, and. Um, what, what we've seen happen in most of the factories where we put robots in, and I can just speak from the evidence that we've seen ourselves, is that they never you know, go and fire people because we now have robots that can mm -hmm. do this thing. Uh, what usually happens is that they move those people into higher skilled tasks and functions. And so they say either they could come and like maintain the robots or they can go and start doing um, you know, more dexterous work or more creative work, or they can work with the vendors and try to figure out uh, all these other things. You know? and, and, uh, you know, these jobs are are not only kind of, you know, boring in the sense that you're doing the same thing on repeat all day, 
they're also physically very, very taxing. You know, like I'll just give one example. One of our customers makes, you know, body lotion and shampoo. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, when I went and visited them the first time, there was little, literally a line of 50 people standing in a row, screwing on the bottle caps onto these, uh, onto these bottles. And you would see, you know, they would screw on two of them and then they would shake their hand because it's so painful wow. and they would do more. But like, can you imagine having to do that? for eight to 10 hours a day, you know, it's, I think that's a form of torture. Right. Um, and so uh, I think in a sense that we have a moral obligation to make these highly repetitive things much, much easier uh, because we're unleashing the potential of humans to do the things that really matter uh, and they uniquely do. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think like there's, that's not to say that we're ignoring that, like the difficulty of it, right. I think there will be, some people whose roles will be displaced and they have to figure out how they can upskill and train themselves for the next role. Mm. But I think that's happening across the board. I think it's happening with white collar work as well. You know, if you, if your only skill was that you were very, very good at Excel, uh, you know, I'm sorry to break it to you. <laughs> You're going to need a new job in the next few years. You know, uh, AI is going to replace a lot of that. Uh, and uh, you know, if you're so, so uh, I think, we as a society need to figure out how we can continue to upskill um, ourselves, how to create uh, accessible training, how to figure out, you know, like the ultimate skill that a human has is the ability to learn and use tools, right? I think um, the, the more we can use those tools to our advantage, uh, the more leverage we have, the more we can accomplish. So um, I, I think the optimistic side of me is, is the dominating part. And I'm mm -hmm. generally very, very excited by the future that's ahead of us. But there's going to be challenges too that we have to figure out how to solve. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a sort of like a spiritual anguish that we're going through in general uh, uh, th that a lot of people are going through, uh, particularly given like you know some people think that we're in a fourth turning, um, if uh, you know that the, where there's sort of a large amount of chaos that we're all going under, uh, and then part of that chaos is this this threat that's represented. Uh, and it's, re it's so interesting because I think a lot of the, a lot of that threat is actually overplayed by the specific business players uh, uh, who, who are doing it because fear sells so well. So it actually um, kind of like a sneaky way to, to get about, I don't know about that, but uh, so, but there's like a spiritual anguish that a lot of people are facing just like where we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what's going on. There's huge changes in society, particularly at the level of like, if you're an American uh, but we I work at a business process outsourcing company, so I'm dealing with people all over the world. Um, and, uh, and I'm also in Brazil right now. And it's really interesting to be in a developing country, uh, and work a lot with developing pe people in the developing country. Cause those, those people are hungry, like, uh, for these opportunities, but in the United, United States, there's, it feels like, and a lot of the West, there's a sort of just like spiritual anguish where people don't know what to do anymore because we're losing that sense that we were on top and kind of like we we had we had we had had this expectation of the way the future was going and then those expectations are changing uh do you have any thoughts on that more thoughts than i know how to say um i have a lot of thoughts on that i mean i think uh maybe one of the things you're touching on a little bit is this idea of a sense of purpose you know i think without uh, a clear sense of purpose uh it's easy to feel like your your work is not valuable and i think that it doesn't matter actually if your work is complicated or easy uh it doesn't matter if your job is replaceable by ai or not if you don't have a sense of purpose um or something kind of meaningful that you're striving towards it's very hard to uh, kind of derive any satisfaction from the work that you do 
whether you're, you know, the top lawyer in the world or, you know, the CEO of a company or working on a factory line, you know, that's, I don't think that changes too much. Uh, that being said, you know, I think where do we derive our sense of purpose from? I think in our society today, uh, there's this sense that money is that purpose. Mm. And you can make more money than you're fulfilling a purpose. And if you make less money, you're not fulfilling that purpose. I think that for a lot of people, you know, they've grown disillusioned with that idea as well. Uh, it turns out that making more money doesn't really make you significantly happier uh, if you don't have a kind of more, you know, higher order purpose than that. Um, and so I think there's this, uh, uh, you know, I think American society in particular is going through this uh, process of searching, right? Like to mm -hmm. find what are the things that really drive us? What are the things that make our lives worthwhile? And, you know, I have my views. I, I don't necessarily think that everybody might, you know, would agree with those, but in my mind, you know, I think us being able to kind of relate to other humans, to help other humans, to create a, a, a additional unity in the world that we live, to kind of continue to improve our own abilities and characteristics, those are, you know, meaningful purposes for us to strive for and, and are worth uh, doing, whether, you know, no matter what the job is that we're doing, uh, you can practice your ability to be patient or detail-oriented, you know, whether you're sleeping, sweeping floors or, you know, balancing the ledger and accounting, you know, or, or in any job really. Hmm. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, focusing more on like, what are the kind of skills and abilities that we as humans want to work on and how do we separate that from uh, a specific job from which we derive our sense of purpose, uh, I think is um, the next evolution of, of our lives. Really interesting point you made about it's essentially any job you can be find meaning in any job uh, because the meaning isn't necessarily a fact of that objective job that you're doing. It's more of an internal framing of like whether you're focused on serving others. I think I'm adding my own point here, but whether you're focused on serving others or whether you're focused on serving yourself, getting that serving yourself would be that money kind of thing. Although money can also serve other people as well if you have a family and stuff. Um, so there, it's like that intrinsic motivation and that deals so much with attitude and that you can actually be creating widgets or being that guy who's screwing on the shampoo bottle and and he's doing it for his family and you know and it's and it's like he's got the motivation to do that in the sense of meaning and purpose because those are related to things that he cares about um and it and it's so funny because it's like but our training for the past 100 years 200 years ever since the enlightenment came around is that it's just the training is that we live in a kind of like objective universe and we need to figure out the objective universe because the subjective is kind of like it's not really that important as the objective thing that we're that we're doing and everything like that um what do you think about this difference between objective and subjective and that kind of intrinsic motivation and also i'd like to talk about like as a company because you're starting a company as well uh like what where where does meaning come in when you're actually starting a company as well? Do you find that you're you're very uh, intrinsically motivated? What's your personal um, kind of like any anything you want to talk about in those general that spiel I just gave? Yeah, I think um, maybe just quickly first addressing this kind of subjective versus objective. I uh, I think that there's uh, uh, I think we went through this period in 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 the West in particular of kind of extreme individualism. Mm -hmm. And that extreme individualism meant, you know, extreme subjectivity in your purpose, right? Like everybody has a purpose, whatever your purpose is, that's for you to decide and that's fine. And whatever your purpose is, 
you know, good for you. Keep it up. You know, follow your dreams. Uh, and I think that you know that is actually uh, over time turns out to be a pretty demotivating and 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 kind of sad uh, uh, state of affairs. I think like because what that means is that my objective doesn't matter to anybody else, right? Like what I do, you know, is just for me, and you know, I'm kind of just keeping myself happy. Like. It, so if, if my purpose is, you know, if, if I decide that I just want to, you know, kind of get high all day, like, then that's, you know, that's fine. Like, I don't know. I think it's, it, it led a lot of people down the path of feeling disillusioned. Yeah. Uh, and I think having some kind of objective purpose and having some kind of objective goal is so important because it places the work that you do inside of a context or inside of a framework. And I think as society, we, we do have things that we care about um uh and and uh you know maybe not every single person in the world but i think like, there's a lot of people that will recognize like that you know kind of moving towards more unity is probably better than moving towards disunity mm -hmm. so if you take that as one example like can if that's a if that's an objective yardstick you know each of us can measure the work that we do towards that yardstick and i think that that's much more satisfying than a purely subjective uh like framing of my goals but maybe that's a little too philosophical. You, you asked about my specific kind of motivations around starting Formic. Um, you know, I think it's uh, probably overly simplistic, but, you know, I'm I'm an engineer by training. And uh, so for me, the idea of having, of building something that was once an idea and seeing it turn into reality uh, is extremely satisfying. Um, and seeing the things that I build and, you know, being put to use is extremely, extremely satisfying. Uh, and so for me, you know, I think uh, there was this challenge because I saw a lot of robotics companies. I was a venture capitalist for a while and I was investing in all these startups and I saw robotics technology advance really quickly. But on the other hand, I saw adoption was very low. And I was like, you know, what the hell's going on, right? Like there's all this useful stuff in the world. Uh, why are people adopting it? Um, and what I realized is that, um, you know, it's not purely a technology problem. Uh, for automation and robotics to really be used at scale, you need to solve a whole bunch of things. You need to solve the risk factors. You need to solve the scoping and design of the right robot for the job. You need to fix, figure out how to do all the service and maintenance. You have to be able to create a model financially that's accessible for small factories who traditionally don't have hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars that they can spend mm. on uh, on equipment that is risky. Um, and, you know, there's also this kind of information asymmetry where the users of robotics generally know the least about robotics. Um, and so, you know, the people who are selling equipment are just trying to sell a widget and they're trying to upsell it as much as they can. And there's just misaligned incentive. And so what we realize is that um, what we really need to do is create aligned incentives, make it easier for people to adopt automation. Uh, we need to kind of take on more of the risk and responsibility and challenge of deploying automation. Uh, and factories just pay us an hourly rate to use the robot. Um, and uh, what we've seen is that that's drastically made it easier for people to uh, scale up the automation in their facility. And I think there's there's analogs to that in other industries as well. For example, um, you know, AWS did that for servers, right? Server technology had... Uh, you know, had been around Dell and HP make great servers, but if the only way for you to have email on your computer is to buy, you know, $30,000 of servers and have an air conditioned room in your office and uh, have an IT person responsible for managing it and have a data line and all these different things, you know, chances are most people are just not going to have email. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't until these cloud service providers came along and said, you know what, we're going to 
take on the ownership and management of the of these of these servers, and you as an end user just get to use the output of it. Um, that's what really drove adoption, and so um, mm. that's you know, what we're trying to do with automation is make it accessible for many, many more people. Well, that's super interesting what you said about uh, the specific business model innovation that you guys created uh, about that the factories don't take on the risk of implementing this and they just pay you an hourly rate because uh, it's almost the exact opposite of what we came together as a company to figure out because we're dealing with the human in the loop of business process outsourcing. So instead of like, uh, uh, instead of paying a machine, we're paying a human. And when you pay a human hourly rate, uh, totally misaligns incentive because they basically want to charge as much as money uh, as possible. But you're selling robots. Robots have no incentives that are outside of our own our, our own intentions. So it's a very interesting that what works for humans doesn't work for 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 robots. And I think that's the main thing that I've learned over the past few months too is that uh, like it's not about the competition between robots and, and humans because we will lose that competition. Like uh, if we try to compete where the robots are, are doing, it's like, that's gone. It's, you know, like uh, you, you can grieve over it, but, uh, but like the, that we can't compete. Like you're not seeing chess players get better enough to go beat deep blue. And that happened 20 years ago. Same thing's going to happen with all these other things. So it's like, we can't compete there. Uh, so we have to move into a whole other spectrum of reality and spectrum of consciousness, like where we, where maybe even the hunter gatherers might excel uh, is just like in this holistic thinking that doesn't even occur to the robot, although it can simulate that pretty well sometimes. Uh, any, any thoughts on that? That's a lot to unpack. Um, um, I think, you know, I, I think that the, the the point you made around incentives is a really interesting one. I think there's um, there's a challenge that people have around, uh, you know, like that, that's why this whole idea of, um, of paying a consultant is very difficult for a lot of people, right? Because like when you pay uh, an hourly rate for somebody to do a job, you know, they're not motivated to do it quickly. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you end up pe penalizing the people who are actually really, really good. Um, on the other hand, if you pay um, a robot, uh, you know, for a for a fixed task, like the problem is like there's a lot of components that go into getting that robot to do that job well. And so you have the humans, and you have the spare parts, you have the hardware, you have software that runs on that robot. You have to be able to adapt it. So you know, I think that there's uh, we're still trying to figure out really, I think as a society, you know, how these things fit into um, our lives. I think with AI, you know, it it, it increases that challenge because. Uh, it becomes even harder for me as a human to be able to judge the output of another person. You know, like, you know, did you work three hours? Did you work 10 hours? Like, I don't really care actually, uh, uh, as long yeah. as uh, you know, the work output was good. Um, and so, you know, in, in a factory environment, it's a little bit different, right? Because you say, okay, I need to do eight parts per minute and, you know, I need to run for three hours to meet my production goal for today, or I need to run for 24 hours to meet my production goals for today. Um, you know, you're kind of rate constrained by the rest of the chain of things that need to happen. So there's a really a way to kind of drastically turn up the speed of one part of your process without turning up the rest of your process as well. That's so interesting. Um, how close are factories to like full automation where they're, they're like, I guess it depends on what you're building as well, but like, cause what you just said made me think about like, well, if the, ro if the factory is filled with robots, then, you know, they can work 24 hours a day, but it, we're obviously not there yet. Uh, so how close are we to that? or even at all, like, will there always be humans in the loop when it comes to factories? Um, we are very, very far from whole factories operating 
lights out. Uh-huh. Uh, but that doesn't mean that factories don't run 24 hours a day. And most many factories do run 24 hours a day. It's just that you need a certain number. Let's say you have a factory that has a hundred jobs that need to get done, right? Like no matter when you're running it at 3 a.m. or 7 a.m. or 4 p.m. in the afternoon, you still have a hundred jobs that need to get done in that one at a time in that factory because it's a chain of things that need to happen. Mm. Uh, and so uh, what happens today is you can only fire, let's say you can only hire 130 people. Uh, well, you know, guess what? You can only run a shift and a half to maybe, right? Like, <laughs> mm. uh, and your second shift is like incomplete, right? So uh, what happens with robots is that you, when you put in some robots, some of those shifts get filled, right? You say, oh, these 10 positions are now filled for three shifts a day. And the same 150 people that I had available, now I can share them over three shifts. Uh, and, mm-hmm. oh, you know what? Later on, if I have more robots, the same number of people can do even more work. And so with the same amount of, of, of people, you basically can double or triple the output of your plant if you put in a little bit of automation. Mm. Uh, it's so interesting because it really comes down to this interaction between human beings and robots. And like, and, and I think that's the question that now we're going to all have to answer for ourselves is how to actually like really figure out how to interact with these robots. And then that brings into kind of some tangential stuff about, you know, how, how the robots are actually being going to be used at a personal level and maybe an intimate level. Uh, you know, that movie, her, I had to go back and after I've been working to this company, I'd have to go back and, you know, watch her again because I wanted to uh, not as a, as an entertainment, but as like, okay, well, this is now happening because now there are certain things about the LLM that are actually more advanced than, than what was projected in, in her um, and so like, it's just going to be such an interesting time. And this brings into some mind of, of, of like other, other things related that, uh, about the, the line between humans and robots. Cause right now we're, we're almost at the cyborg state already where we have a phone that's on our, in our hands. So, you know, um, most of our waking, waking moments, uh, and like, so we're already, we, our brains have already been modified because our fingers are so tied to our prefrontal cortex and, and our vision is so tied to the phone. Uh, and so we're already like there to the point where the, the, the machines have now kind of sort of entered our brains already. And so like, where is that line? Um, uh, and this could be, you know, somewhat controversial. Oh, as I said, the, the question I had was, uh, if, if a, does a, is a human that drives a tractor, a cyborg or not? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, okay. Is a human that drives a tractor a cyborg or not? Yeah. So you're saying, well, yeah. And it, yeah, this goes back to the other question. I'm not, I'm not going to, oh, I can give an answer, but I want to also uh, go towards, because uh, it brings it back to something that I've thought about as well as like, because I've, I've thought a lot, okay, we have this phone that's now connected to our, uh, to our brains all the time. And so like, was the invention of writing basically that first time where we, where we crossed into the cyborg and it's just taken a long time to get to the point where it's actually noticeable. And so a, a tractor driving a, uh, a human driving a tractor, I would say, no, that's not the point. Cause I, cause I, I really think it comes down to the blood brain barrier because once, once the, the machine is inside the head, I think that's the point at which the machine and the human no longer are separated. Um, whereas like we're, where we're really close to it virtually, but yeah, this brings into the kind of philosophical questions as well about consciousness and virtuality, because we're already simulating our, 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 our existence. We're already simulating a lot of things. Like the things that we see aren't the actual things that we're seeing. It's like a, an interpretation that our brain is having based on our past experience and all these different things. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think I'll leave that question up to philosophers, right? Uh-huh. But I think that what I, in my perspective, 
uh, hum like one of the things that makes humans human is our ability to use tools, right? Mm. Uh, and those yeah. make and use tools. And there's a variety of those, you know, a variety of, of tools that we use. Some of them are manual, some of them are, are mechanical, right? Some of them are tractors, uh, and some of them are digital. And like, I don't think that there's really a giant difference between those. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs has this line about uh, about computers being the bicycle of the mind. I think it was really interesting because uh, um, he he was he was referencing this study that he had read about, where it showed you know the efficiency of every animal in the world uh, in terms of movement, right? And so you have this long list. You say, okay, you know, I don't remember. Like, I think like the condor or some kind of bird was at the top in terms of like the amount of energy they need to expend to go one mile. Right. And then it's like the cheetah and the blah, 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 and so and so. And humans are like way low on the list uh, in terms of their like efficiency of converting energy into motion. But a human on a bicycle blows even the top thing on that list out of the water. Right. It's like 10 times more than even, you know, the condor or the cheetah or whatever. And um, I think that like that's an indication of what, what humanity is. Right. Like we are we're not the most physically fit or we're not the most even intellectually uh, uh, capable animals on the planet or, you know, whatever, not animals, but like devices in, in the world, right? Like our phones do a lot of things faster than us, but that's not the thing that makes us special. I think our, you know, my ability to calculate and multiply numbers together is not <laughs> the thing that makes me uniquely human, right? It's my ability to create the thing that multiplies numbers together or to create something that multiplies together numbers faster than I can. So um, all that to say, you know, I think uh, tool use is fundamental to our, you know, our, our place in the world. And like, I think it's uh, something we need to kind of continue to develop. And I think all of these AI things that we're, we're seeing uh, come into production right now are just more manifestations of that. You know, mm -hmm. I think people make this, uh, leap between ai and agi right like there's a lot of things that are artificial intelligence like there are things that are useful for us as tools then there's a lot of fear about agi which is like oh what if they become sentient and want to kill us and take over the world those two things are not connected and there's no evidence of the second one you know there's a lot of evidence in the first one i don't know you know how how much good it does us to think about uh this future general intelligence that's going to take over the world and want to kill us all there's no evidence that anything is leading in that direction. <laughs> so yeah. I don't particularly think it's worth spending a lot of time on. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, now, uh, I'm, I'm deeply interested in this question that you've brought up about tools being our most fundamental strength. Um, and it's everywhere because it's I'm looking at hangers right now. A hanger is a tool like everything in, in most of our probably your your visual sphere, my visual sphere. Most of it's all just tools that humans have created that would make absolutely zero sense to a dolphin. Um, and so like and then we've just gotten so good at making tools that the tools themselves are starting to use other tools, uh, which brings to mind your company, but also the LLMs because the LLM like that code interpreter. It was went and you know was able to use Python in order to build the CSV file, um, and so it's but like what does that mean philosophically? Because it led me to the idea that okay, so tools are so fundamental to us, we use them all the time. We don't necessarily think a lot about all the secondary, second order effects of the tools, and there's a lot of those. For like the you know the car the 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 way the car changed the cities at least in the United States was like a huge secondary secondary effect, um, and but 
like and then there's nuclear weapons and stuff like that that are just like massively massively powerful uh nuclear power plants all these different things and i don't really have a question here but it's just really interesting that like is that all we are as humans like just tool users or is there something else about us that makes us unique oh no i think there's much more than that i think we are right like i think the process of developing science and philosophy and these are all tools for the mind mm. that allow us to learn more they allow us to make physical tools um those physical tools feedback and allow us to do more with our mental tools but no i mean i think tool use is one of the one of the things that we're good at um there are many <laughs> others you know and i don't think it's even the most important one yeah. uh but um i also don't think it's one we should be scared of right like i don't think it's mm. sometimes this narrative that like oh uh, tools are taking over our lives yeah, yeah. or they're replacing the things that we're good at like who cares like that's the whole point you know like let's make, let's make as many tools as we can uh let's make them as useful as we can so we can power humanity forward um on the back end you know like we also have to develop you know mental tools we have to continue to advance philosophy and science and uh you know all of the other you know art you know there's, you know it's there's a lot of value in all of those things they're not tools in the traditional sense, right? They don't affect our physical lives immediately, but they're not super useful. So that brings to mind what I would love to talk about is that, so Formic, there's a company called Formic that you're building uh, based on Orson Scott Card novel, um, his particular, uh, uh, you know, like this, this, this alien species and stuff like that. And science fiction, science fiction went through a period where in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, it was like, utopia like this is going to be amazing like everybody's going to have much easier lives and then start probably around the after the nuclear stuff happened uh in 1990s all of a sudden all of its degenerative dystopian science fiction um why do you think that happened why do you think that shift happened and like can how important is it that that shift happened it, it, like because now is our anchor basically on this dystopia so much that it's affecting how we're building these tools. Like, do you think there's a relationship between the actual fiction that we write about the tools and the actual implementation? Or do you think there's like, or do you think we're outside of that? Or do you think there's going to be change? What's What are your thoughts on that? Interesting question. I, again, kind of speaking anecdotally, I feel like most engineers derive a lot of inspiration from science fiction. Uh, but I think mostly just the optimistic stuff, not the pessimistic stuff. I don't know if people think, look at this dystopian versions of the future and say, oh, I want to kind of build that. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot more on the other side where people see uh, utopian, you know, versions, visions of technology and like it drives them forward. So yeah. um, I don't know. I, I think um, it's still, it's still, I think, I think, um, Science fiction has has a special place in my heart um, because you know it it kind of gives you an idea of what the future could look like. I still think there's a lot of utopian science fiction out there. Uh, I read this book recently that I really liked, um, which is called Project Hail Mary. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. If you've it. I haven't heard of it, but oh man, it's so good. I don't want to give it away, uh, but um, you know, it's what it's it's got to do with you know going into space and humanity, you know, figuring out difficult problems. Um, but when you read that, you know, you start to think about all these kind of potential futures that are out there. What would it be like if we interacted with aliens? What would it be like if we did this? What would it be like if we did that? Uh, and I think, you know, 
when I talk to engineers at SpaceX or engineers at, uh, you know, uh, any robotics company or even in our company, I think people generally find those those stories and narratives inspiring, uh, and they you know it gives them excitement about what they what they want to work on. Mm. Cool. So we got about five minutes left, um, and there's a few questions that I've been that have been going around and back ahead. I mean, one of them is like, wh- what was that? What was that original incentive to go to China? Uh, to were were you doing engineer stuff or was it travel? Like, why did you go to China to do for twenty years? Yeah, my parents moved there when I was a, a kid. So I moved there when I was six years old. I lived wow. there until I was 18. Uh, and then I went back after college and, and worked there for a little bit as well. So um, yeah, I got to see China go through a lot of transition. Uh, when I, when we first moved to China, we were living in Beijing and there was dirt roads and donkeys carrying bricks in the middle of the street. And uh, you know, by the time we left, it was this massive kind of modern metropolis. And right. I think uh, China went through this massive change in the last 20 years that um, or 30 years that really um, uh, is one of the biggest kind of collective shifts in, in, in life of individual humans, right? Like the 400 million, 500 million people lifted out of poverty, like all of these things happen. And like the, the, the quality of life of the individual Chinese person changed a lot in the last 30 years. And for me, you know, I think coming to the States, what was frustrating was I realized that like things move a lot more slowly here. Uh, you know, you would see, in China, you know, within a matter of months or weeks, you know, a new building would go up or a new subway line would open. And then you'd come here and like 10 years later, you know, everything looks exactly the same. And so I think that there's a little bit of that um, uh, that sense of hopefulness for the future and that sense of potential and, and, and speed and expectation of speed that um, uh, the U.S. has lost a little bit of it, uh, right? I think that it's lost some of that hopefulness. And I think, um, uh, yeah, I think that like in the next few years, like the U.S. needs to either figure out how to get that back, mm-hmm. or is going to have a hard time competing but, on global. Because I mean, but there could be another option which kind of like doesn't fit well into the modern um, kind of narrative of history, which is that like things change so drastically in certain areas, whether that's the you know federal governments having less kind of uh, control that they would normally have or like, cause my, my understanding of the, the transition that we're going through, and this is just like purely based off of kind of intuition and various things that I've read is that we're basically going through a sort of splintering in our, in our collective consciousness where before we had these large national understandings of who we are based on, you know, like United States national project where we're, 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 you know, it's, we're, we're an American and, and now, and like, and then China had this thing and then Brazil had its thing and Russia had its thing. Um, and so we're all these national projects that are huge and moving towards more growth. And now it feels like we're moving towards a splintering of that, of that kind of thing. And we're going into thousands and thousands of different tribes, um, but not necessarily tribes that were just like part of one, but like thousands of different options for the various niches that you could talk about. And I'll give an example that I've talked about for a long time on the show, which is a, a new uh, computing protocol called Urbit. Um, and Urbit is like a new internet with a new operating system, with a new uh, functional programming language. It's all built off of peer-to-peer. They did a clean slate redesign of the whole internet. Um, and it's like a super niche project, but the niche itself draws all these really super smart engineers. And there's like a very in-group thing. 
But like, well, what happens if, if Google doesn't happen again, you know, that there is no Google that replaces Google that, that like, that goes wildly massive, that we're actually just like in this place now where it's, where it's going to be really difficult to hear about all the crazy things that are happening with AI and just like the whole consciousness kind of splinters into these various, like not, and they're not really local groups because it's all connected through the internet. So like, it's, it's like, glo- it's like a mixture of glo- global and local. And I'm kind of rambling a lot. Um, but maybe to just wrap up, if you have a, f- a few minutes to think, uh, to uh, share any thoughts you have on on that, um, I think you know, like when when crypto was kind of having its moment, there's a lot of people thinking about this topic of decentralization uh-huh. and how do we get to a world where you know control and ownership of the next generation of platform is more uh, distributed. Um, I can't say I'm like a particular crypto enthusiast, but I think that there are some ideas around that that um, I think are really meaningful because I think the idea of, of a nation state is is um, it's man-made, first of all, and also I think it's kind of outdated. You know, I think that there are things that connect us between countries that are much more powerful than our national identities. And I think um, figuring out ways that we can use that connection to supersede our kind of, you know, dogmatic loyalty to one country or another, I think is really important. Um, So I don't think that's a direct answer to your question, but I think, I hope that um, we can move to a world where platforms and systems and technology are owned by a wider range of people or uh, uh, you know, segment of human society, and that more countries can benefit from it. Mm. Uh, now, the benefits of a lot of technology are pretty limited to um, certain countries and certain people. Uh, and I think we want to see technology improve the lives of of a lot more people. Uh, mm. And so, yeah, I think it's not a direct answer to your question, but I think for me, some those are some of my gra- guiding principles, which is. Um, I think we need to find out how we can uh, kind of distribute the benefits of technology much better. Mm. Well, that's very cool. So th- uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. How can people find out more about you and find out more about Formic? Yeah, I'm on Twitter uh, at Salman Farid. You can find me on, uh, uh, you can find our company on, on our website, formic.co. Um, yeah, reach out anytime if there's anything I can do. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.